Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Who is Elon Musk? Really? I'm Sean Ailing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. I don't have a good answer to that question. I'm not sure anyone does. Half the time, I'm in awe of Musk, and the other half, I'm baffled by his antics. But as a cultural figure, Musk really occupies his own space. No pun intended. He's now the richest person on the planet, or the second richest, depending on the day. And as his fame has grown, the line between the man and the myth has blurred. Some of that has to do with his gift for self-mythology, and some of it has to do with his very real achievements. Whatever you think of Musk, there's no denying his impact. I mean, this is a guy who moves markets with a single tweet. And I know it's cliche to say this, but he really is the closest thing we have to a real-life comic book character. So what are we to make of that? And what are we to make of him? The founder of SpaceX, Elon Musk, is not just a dreamer. He made his fortune with PayPal. He's building Tesla electric cars and is now constructing the largest factory for batteries on this planet. After setbacks, he's now successfully launching rockets. A new podcast series by the Harvard historian Jill Lepore called The Evening Rocket tries to untangle all of this in a way only a historian could. Yeah, it's a deep dive into Musk, the guy, but it's really an exploration of a much larger phenomenon that Musk personifies. Young, handsome, dashing, Thomas Edison meets Henry Ford meets Elvis Presley, with a little Dick Cavett tossed in. Debonair. He'd already disrupted banking and aerospace, now the automobile industry. He wasn't just selling cars to celebrities. He had become one. Or no, or he was becoming something more. For Lepore, Musk is the face of an extreme form of capitalism. A capitalism rooted in science fiction stories and animated by fanciful plans to conquer space and save humanity. She calls this phenomenon Muskism. I know, that's weird. And believes it's not just a political or economic ideology, It's a recycled brand of techno-utopianism that's fascinating, dangerous, and profoundly revealing. In this episode, I talked to Lepore about the peculiar appeal of Musk and why the style of capitalism he represents has become so intoxicating. This isn't pro or anti-Musk. Lepore isn't all that interested in judging Musk as a person. Instead, she sees him as an avatar for broader shifts in her culture. So, without further ado, here's Jill Laporte.
Jill Lepore, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Okay, everything about this project of yours suggests that this is not you just profiling a famous person because they're famous. In a way, your whole podcast series isn't even about Musk the guy, although clearly in some ways it is. You do see him as the face of something happening in our society that's important and probably not well understood and clearly way bigger than just one person. So what is that thing that you see and why is Musk the vehicle for it? Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, so I'm a historian. I'm a political historian. I'm not a biographer of the great and the famous and the rich. I, I really am fantastically uninterested in the history of celebrity or Good for you. Uh, the presidency. Honestly, like I just, I don't read those because I'm not interested in that. Also, I wasn't really much of a Musk follower. Um, I was asked to do this project by the BBC. So it was an assignment that I accepted and then had to think about a way to say something that I thought could be useful about Elon Musk. I mean, so what to me as a political historian is really interesting is what Musk represents, as you put it. What is the face of Musk in the culture, in our political arrangements broadly? And I think we would do well to talk about Muskism as a kind of political economy. And we don't for some reason. There's a lot of been kind of scrambling around to think about a way to talk about the latest incarnation of capitalism, right? Is, are we in late capitalism? Are we in advanced capitalism? Are we in post-industrial capitalism? Are we in surveillance capitalism? Is this platform capitalism? You know, people just trying to like, there's something different, right? Like, yes. this is weird <laughs> stuff. So I think we should just think about it as extreme capitalism, honestly. And that another way to think about extreme capitalism is Muskism. And how I might describe that is it's it's more speculative than industrial capitalism, right? The products to hand are often not actually widgets, but are ethereal items, right? It's less so the case with Musk's own companies, where he make he builds actual things. But it's most of all influenced by visions of the future that derive from science fiction, in fact, from very old science fiction. So Muskism is really antiquarianism disguised as futurism. God, there's so much to get into. Um, it's interesting you use the phrase extreme capitalism. I mean, do you see Muskism as a form of capitalism, or is it so extreme that it's more than that, maybe more like a worldview or an approach to human life that just kind of shatters our conventional understanding of whatever that is? You know, I think it is an extreme form of capitalism in the sense that it's plutocratic. In the way in which it's maybe something new, to me is, again, it's more that it's something old again. There's a lot of feudalism in Muskism, a, a sense that there are these lords and the rest of us are the peasantry and, you know, our fates are in their hands. They know they know best. So I don't think it's a new economic vision. I, I actually think the idea that there's something deeply new and profoundly disruptively innovative about Muskism is part of the self-mystification of that worldview, right? Like, it's important to these people to think that they are doing something new, wholly new and bigger and better and more extreme, like, you know, my whole first episode of The Evening Rocket is about the letter X. They love the letter X, right? Like, it's the science fiction go-to fan letter, right? So everything is X to them. It's extreme. It's extraterrestrial. It's extraordinary. It's extravagant. It's existential. Everything's always existential. But it's actually not. You know, these are mere mortals like the rest of us. They put their pants on one leg at a time, and then they go out and they try to gain power and subvert 
ordinary people's ability to control their own lives. <laughs> that is a lot of what capitalism is. The line between innovation and destruction is awfully blurry. I mean, it, it, the way you <laughs> describe it now, especially the language you're using, makes it sound like this is really a shift towards the concentration of power in fewer and fewer hands. Am I misreading you or mishearing sure, you? Sure, yeah, that's true. But that's that's a source of continuity, right? I mean, if you look at it, you know, everybody was fascinated a few years ago by the Thomas Piketty book and the data that he and his colleagues put together looking at income inequality over the last century and so. And in the U.S., right, we have that data beginning in 1913, the year of the first federal income tax, so we can measure income inequality. And it's very high in that era and then is gradually diminishes. We have low income inequality in the United States, similarly much of Western Europe in the middle post-war decades, sort of 45 to 75. And then income inequality has been rising ever since. So we are now at rates of income inequality. That is the gap between the richest and the poorest people that have not been seen since the 1920s. But that's not unprecedented and brand new, right? It is yeah. a return to pre-New Deal conditions. Well, why do you think it's so important to identify and call out muskism as a new kind of thing? I think people are fascinated by Musk. People who, you know, love Musk and hate Musk are all fascinated by Musk. And it's hard to hold your attention on what might be going on structurally there because Musk is so flashy. I think he wasn't always so flashy. One of the arguments I make in The Evening Rocket is that he himself was quite transformed by his infatuation, the mutual infatuation between Musk and Hollywood. When he sort of became Iron Man in the press, right, there's all these kind of magazine, glossy magazine covers of, you know, sexy, handsome, young Elon Musk. He, he's the new Iron Man, the real life yeah. Iron Man, the real life Tony Stark, that there was a kind of glitterati moment for Musk in which he became kind of the Kim Kardashian of CEOs, in which everything he said was fleeting and meaningless, but extremely influential in the stock market. In other words, he's the kind of figure it's hard to pay attention to in a sustained or structural way because of the nature of his public presence, which is very Twitter-driven, very flashy PR, staged PR event-driven, right? So the next launch of the next SpaceX rocket, we get a glimpse of Elon Musk. He makes all the headlines in every paper, and, you know, there's two things to be said about him, and then he disappears again. So how do you hold on to that, right? It's like just trying to hold on to, like, someone pours a glass of water in your hands and it's just pouring through your fingers, right? Like there was a volume of water in the glass and now it's, you know, evaporated. What was that? How are we supposed to find meaning in that? So I thought it would be useful to sort of pull back, again, as a political historian who thinks a lot about the relationship between politics and technology and try to think systematically about where Musk's ideas come from. I think that was, for me, the biggest question that I had yeah. because his self-mystification is... Every idea just pops out of his head. He's a visionary. And I don't mean to say, like, Musk is an extremely fascinating person with a lot of ideas. But most of his ideas are recycled, quite old ideas. Well, why do you think Elon has become this transcendent public figure? I mean, is it about him and how he's packaged and sold himself? Or is there something about us, something on the demand side of this that made him the perfect face of all of this? I think it's both. I do think it, you know, it was a public relations strategy of Tesla early on when Musk assumed leadership of the company that instead of advertising, which Tesla really does not do, 
they would promote the product by promoting the idea of Elon Musk. And then the idea of Elon Musk has to be a very particular life story. Not unlike, say, the campaign biographies of political figures, right? You know, Andrew Jackson ushers in the age of the common man. He rose from poverty to the White House. You know, James Garfield, from the log cabin to the White House. (laughs) Bill Clinton, the boy from hope, right? So it really relies on the political packaging of especially presidential candidates, right? Which is a whole industry. And the packaging of Elon Musk was, he was a boy wonder, he had a vision to change the world as a child, that this was influenced by reading The Hitchhiker's Guide when he was a young teen, and that he decided early on in the 90s, before he went to graduate school briefly at Stanford, he was there for two days, that he had three things that he wanted to do that needed to be done to save the human race. Um, it's a political biography in that sense. It borrows from, think of the political campaign ads of Ronald Reagan. But it's something more as well because it has a real culty quality to it, right? He's a messiah figure. And that's really how Tesla presents him. And he he embraces that role. I think he enjoys the public battlefield. He enjoys mocking people online. He can be very funny. People love his humor. He has a kind of laddishness. I mean, the guy like runs through marriages and women and has children with a lot of different people. And that's appealing. He also, I think his social media presence and the hunger for following someone who was irreverent, could be funny, had a lot of power. I think his followership probably really exploded when Trump was banned from Twitter. He's not Trump. I mean, this is a totally false comparison to make, but I think he appeals to people online in a similar way, right? You want a sexy boy man who has a lot of power and can be funny. Yeah, you look, Trump and Musk are just different. They're different, absolutely. But maybe one connective thread there is that part of Elon's popularity or part of the popularity of his ideas, whether we're talking about colonizing space or or cryptocurrency or whatever, that that is a symptom of a damaged society. In what sense is Muskism and its appeal a symptom of a broken society? I mean, Musk is a very accomplished engineer. He is not a straw man figure. He is a real person with real ideas who leads two major companies that have both undertaken extraordinary engineering feats. You know, Tesla really does get a huge amount of credit for the revival of the electric vehicle, a nearly destroyed industry, right? SpaceX is doing extraordinary things. And if it weren't for my sense of the sort of malign understory there, I, as someone who's, you know, wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid, like, would be super thrilled. Like, it's incredibly exciting that these rockets land. Like, it's very, it's, it's extraordinary. Like, so just to be totally clear, like, these are big companies doing big, bold things. And a lot of that is with all due credit to Elon Musk for his leadership and his ingenuity. To me, though, I'm much more interested in other things that Tesla has done under other kind of battery research that's useful for energy in rural places. Like some of the most important stuff that Tesla has done is not what it brags about, weirdly. I think uh, what Musk tends to take stands on you know, the crypto kind of currency stuff or weird stuff that he wades into foolishly. I don't know, like you could sort of set that to one side. Um, Is his appeal a function of a damaged society? Well, I mean, I guess the example that, that I would give is 
whether or not human beings on this planet should build colonies on Mars or on the moon is actually a question that we all have a stake in. And the idea, the presumption that Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, the two wealthiest people in the world, get to decide the extraterrestrial fate of humankind is a bizarrely regressive notion. You know, you may or may not have approved of the Apollo mission to go to the moon in the 1960s, but you had a say in that. It was a government-run program where people engaged in political protest over it. A lot of people objected to the Apollo program on the grounds that it was a misuse of public funds at a time when those funds could be better deployed implementing the Civil Rights Act and the the equality requirements of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I mean, you know, the day before the launch in 1969 of the Apollo 13, civil rights activists were at the Space Center protesting. There's a whole long tradition of democratic deliberation over what kind of a mission in space humankind should have. We have so far forgotten that tradition, that this is actually a matter of public goods and public deliberation and democratic deliberation, that there's really just no question. Like, and even the media will cover, you know, wow, William Shatner went up in a Blue Origin rocket and Jeff Bezos's childhood dreams come true. Isn't that groovy? Like, and then maybe there's like a goofy satirical version of that, like where there's a joke about it on Saturday Night Live or something. But on the whole, are we having a a big public debate about whether this is just because you have enough money to build a base on the moon, should you as a private citizen be able to? We haven't had that conversation. Well, I love this phrase, extraterrestrial capitalism. I mean, it captures this obsession with colonizing space, but for me at least, it also speaks to an indifference to this world. And I know there are all kinds of efforts by Musk and others to fix problems here. But to me, it's all punctuated by a very quiet resignation, a very deep, unstated belief that this experiment we call civilization is just irredeemably broken or unworthy of salvaging. And so we can explore frontiers and fix our world at the same time. But I don't get the sense that that's what's happening here. Am I too jaded in reading it that way? Well, a lot of the vision behind the Mars expedition comes from the science fiction writer Kim Stanley Robinson and his Mars trilogy, which was published in the 90s and was a huge success and really influential in what was emerging as Silicon Valley at the time and began to imagine, as theorists were beginning to imagine, ways to create an environment on Mars into which Mars could be colonized. So it was a bit of a, if we build it, they will come sort of thing. But it also coincided with increasing public awareness because scientific awareness of climate change goes back to the 1950s, coincided with growing public awareness of the climate catastrophe in which we now find ourselves. And so a lot of the appeal, I think, to people who were beginning to pitch a Mars colony, which at the time was mainly Newt Gingrich. People have forgotten this, but this was Newt Gingrich's big idea to make the moon American again. But, you know, a lot of it was, just as you suggest, a kind of, well, just in case we destroy this planet, 
or so that the richest of us can get off this planet if necessary, mm -hmm. right? But then with the amplified voice of the environmental movement, this became a huge subject of criticism. So there is no planet B became the motto of the environmental movement. And that was also Kim Stanley Robinson's position. You know, he would say, these people who think we should go to Mars right now when, you know, there is no planet B. That is not actually, like, I wrote this piece of science fiction. Like, there is no option except to save this planet and treat one another well in the world that we have built. But that was kind of cast aside by those sort of boy men science fiction fans who had this fantasy. And they then began to kind of change how they talked about it. Musk in particular kind of changed how he talked about why we should go to Mars, right? So he has these phrases that it is important for humankind to become a spacefaring or multi-planetary species, right? So then you sort of get to the messianic vision of I will yeah. save humankind. And it introduces this weird sort of baffling math that I always find fascinating, which is to say, if you say, yeah, but why don't you, Mr. Bezos, Mr. Musk, with your extraordinary resources, address problems here on Earth? Plenty of other philanthropists have done the same. Or why don't you restructure your corporation in line with ideas that might improve the condition of humans here on Earth? Well, then you sort of get, but that's so short-sighted because we futurists, we future of humanity saviors, we are saving not the handful of billions of people now on Earth, we are saving the untold countless billions of human descendants throughout all time. It, it is just a completely specious argument, right? Like, it's just, like, it's a bizarre logic. But I think in a kind of, like, Aspen Davos world, somehow that seems compelling to people. Elon Musk sells a vision of the future where we build a whole new society one based almost entirely on the power of technology. It's a vision with roots in a lot of old science fiction, but it was also shared by his grandfather, who was, well, an interesting character. More about him after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Well, I think at least talking a little bit about his background may help illuminate some of these kind of grandiose aspirations. And I am very fascinated by Elon's maternal grandfather, who by all accounts was a very important figure in his upbringing and his life. This is the guy who moved his family to South Africa. And this is two years after the declaration of apartheid there. And also two years after Elon's mother was born. And his grandfather's name is Joshua Haldeman. Can you say a bit about this guy and why he was so important to the story of Elon Musk? Yeah, 
he's a great character. Um, he's unbelievable. He's yeah, unbelievable. unbelievably care, unbelievably he's an adventure aviator, kind of self-taught. Who's also a farmer. He worked in the rodeo for a long time as a cowboy. There's a great photograph of him. Well, maybe it's from the 20s, dressed up as a cowboy, and he looks exactly like his grandson. And there's a SNL skit in which Musk is dressed up as a cowboy. And if you look at the photograph of Haldeman dressed up as a cowboy in the rodeo in the 1920s, and Musk on SNL in 2021, like they look like twins. Like it's just an like incredible family likeness. And you know, the family likeness I think goes deeper in in meaningful ways. Haldeman was a uh, was in Saskatchewan, Canada. He was an ardent anti-communist, and he lost his farm during the Depression. And like many people who suffered during the Depression, he was looking around for a new political economy that could address the problems of mass democracy and mass industrialism, right? So socialism had a huge purchase in North America in the 1930s. Obviously, in Europe, it's fascism and Nazism that is the response to the crisis of mass industrial democracy. For Haldeman, it's this movement called the technocracy movement, which we talk about technocrats now in a kind of it's a pejorative to call someone a technocrat, right? Like you believe that right. scientists should rule or configure everything out. Like you're like a bureaucrat, right? But the technocrats, as they called themselves, they got their ideas from science fiction, from pulp science fiction from the 1920s, in which all problems are solved by engineers and scientists who are always the heroes of every problem, whether it's economic or political. There's always a technological fix and it's the glamorous, handsome scientist or engineer who solves it. And these technocrats tended to be people who were gadgeters and tinkerers like Haldeman, who, you know, could build anything, was an incredibly ingenious engineer in a kind of amateur way. And he he became really persuaded by the ideology of technocracy, joined the technocracy movement, became the leader of the technocracy movement in Canada. After a while, Canada made technocracy illegal and he went to prison for being a technocrat. Like, he was all into technocracy. Unreal. Um, these guys were, like, some of it is really just kind of fascinating, but they would wear these gray suits and they all bought like matching gray cars and they would have these technocracy parades with their gray cars wearing their gray suits. Like it's very creepy. That's seeming. incredibly weird. It's incredibly weird. You used the phrase anti-communist and that's interesting. That may be true, uh, but he also seemed to share a lot of their same fantasies or pathologies or impulses or whatever. Right? I mean, this is a guy who really believed that a perfect society could be engineered if only the scientists were allowed to kind of take the reins. I mean, is that right, a fair? Right, but they did not believe okay. in the power of the state, right? They're fundamentally right. libertarian. Right. right? They did yeah. not believe in state power. So in that way, you know, they did not believe in state ownership. They did not believe in capitalism either. They also didn't believe in the price system or banks, right? Banks were the great betrayal. Like people lost their farms because of the banks. They didn't believe in politics. They didn't believe in politicians. Like the answer for everything was an engineer could figure the way out. They would have, they had this idea for a wholly new unit of currency, which was, I <laughs> I think this it was called amazing. the Erg. Like, the Erg, so, based on a unit of heat. Yes. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And so if you read their tracks, which I really encourage people to do, if you go to archive.org, which is the Internet Archives, online archive, you can pull up the technocracy pamphlets from the 1930s. It's almost like they're calling for cryptocurrency. Like, they're, they're calling yeah. for a financial and political system that exists wholly independent of governments and banks and industry. I, you know, it has a long tail. I don't know, you know, I had an interview with Elon Musk. I don't know what his relationship with his grandfather was. Musk was born in South Africa, in Pretoria in 1971. And when he leaves 
when he's 17, he goes to Canada because that's where his passport can take him because his mother had Canadian citizenship. And he goes to Saskatchewan and he hitchhikes across Canada and goes to Saskatchewan. So the historian pictures, you know, 17-year-old Elon Musk reading old technocracy pamphlets from his grandfather's attic or something. But there are many ways in which we inherit the ideas of our ancestors, right? Like there are family conversations, there are kinds of transmission. In any case, you know, you could think of not just personally Elon Musk, but, you know, a Peter Thiel, say, really is the technocrat, right? The sort of libertarian yeah. position, um, engineers know better, banks are all fraudulent, governments are all fraudulent. That's a pretty close approximation of a lot of the positions of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. And do you see shades of Haldeman's utopianism in all the hysteria over meme stocks and crypto? Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know why he picked up his family in 1950 and moved to Pretoria. But South Africa is an interesting destination, right, for someone who is deeply dissatisfied with the order of society. Sort of fascinatingly, it's a part of Musk's biography that I would say most people just have no awareness of whatsoever, you know, that he grew up in South Africa. He doesn't identify that way, you know, nor should he. And I just think it's it's worth scrutiny, right? Both the kind of technocracy family history and what it means to grow up in a state that is designed really almost after the blueprint of H.G. Wells's time machine, right? Like there will be these people that live in the clouds. They never work and everything magically happens for them. But then there are these people hidden underground who do all the actual labor. Like, the systems of inequality that progressive era science fiction writers like Wells were describing were based partly on industrial capitalism, but partly on British colonialism, right? So what Wells is indicting there in describing this vast inequality is not just capitalism, but quite precisely, and Wells would have been the first to say this, the idea of colonizing a place. So when Bezos or Musk take those same science fiction stories and use them to sort of justify their vision to go colonize planets. <laughs> it's just a really bizarre move. Yeah. And, you know, you point out in the podcast, Musk left South Africa when he was 17 to avoid conscription in the army. And you say pretty clearly that there's no indication that Musk was even remotely sympathetic to the apartheid regime. But you do say there's a weird way in which the culture of apartheid, and I think you're hinting at this now, found expression in the 1990s in Silicon Valley's vision of the future. Yeah. And, you know, I, I want to be very clear because he was a child growing up there. Peter Thiel also right. grew up for some part of his childhood in South Africa. You don't hold people to account for the political system, which, you know, I, most of us living in the United States today grew up in segregated, racially segregated communities. You know, it has a consequence for us in our lives. But are we responsible for the neighborhood we were born into as children? No. Or the country that we were born into? Absolutely not. But I think there's a kind of comfort with the economic hierarchy that exists in Silicon Valley that you don't see as it is really part of the American political tradition in a conscious way. And I, I think there's just like an extraordinary comfort with vast inequalities of wealth that's part of the culture of Silicon Valley. It's, it has become the culture of much of the corporate world. But even, you know, think about, I think it just in the last few months where there have been these efforts to actually bring to the floor the so-called billionaire's tax, right? To use extreme taxation of the massively wealthy to help fund pandemic response or infrastructure. And Musk has said, you know, he shouldn't have to pay because 
he's bringing the light of consciousness to outer space. Um, what? What? <laughs> but U.S. roads and U.S. citizens paying their own taxes are making possible your acquisition of wealth. And the schools that are publicly funded where your workers attend school or where their children go to school and who later come to work for your company are funded by taxpayer dollars. But you don't have to contribute. What? What is that? Don't mind me. I'm just saving the world. Yeah. Can we go back to Iron Man for a second? Because like a lot of people have pointed out the the parallels between Musk and Stark. And as you point out, uh, you know, John Favreau, the director of the original 2008 Iron Man, like very consciously used Musk as an inspiration for Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man character. You know, Marvel's Iron Man came out in 1963 and, you know, Stark was conceived as this rich high society defense contractor. It was supposed to be everything that everyone could hate, that would hate and should hate, according to the creator. Why do you think we didn't hate Iron Man as a character uh, (laughs) in in, in the Marvel world, even up to the day? He's a hero. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Iron Man is so fascinating. It's a little bit like, um, you know, Sherlock Holmes, when Sherlock Holmes debuted, the Watson has just come back from the war in Afghanistan. That's why he can't work. He's been destroyed by the war, emotionally destroyed by fighting in Afghanistan. This is the British fighting in Afghanistan. When the Benedict Cumberbatch reboot happened, Watson had also just come back from the war in Afghanistan. Like, the conditions of suffering that are the backstories of these characters are easily updated because so little has changed. And that, I think, is also true, right, of Iron Man. So Iron Man is a weapons manufacturer during the... Vietnam War. Elon Musk <laughs> is Tony Stark updated for the war in Afghanistan. When the Iron Man movie is the first Iron Man movie comes out in 2008, he's a weapon manufacturer during the Afghanistan war. So there's something really, I think, quite chilling to think about. The shadow of military adventuresomeness would be maybe one way to think about it, or the culture of militarism on the domestic front, right? I think that, you know, Stan Lee came up with different explanations for what had happened to Iron Man. But one was that he was transformed. He's a little bit like Tin Man, right? Like, he has no heart. Then he has to have a mechanical heart. But he was heartless before he lost his heart. But with the mechanical heart, he becomes a man of heart. That somehow his transformation through needing to build this iron suit in order to stay alive with this mechanical heart makes him more fully human than he was when he was actually a human. And I think that's what comes to be appealing about the character in the 1960s, that there's some redemption to be found in the waging of war, that there is a moral compass that one could locate in the jungles of Vietnam. is an appealing idea somehow. It's also just a certain sort of moment in the history of American masculinity, right? The ability of this character to be vulnerable within an iron suit. So that's updated in Robert Downey Jr.'s depiction of the lead character in the films that come out in 2008, but it's updated, you know, both by the sort of new Vietnam, which is Afghanistan, but also updated in the guise of a sort of new cultural fascination with the entrepreneur, with the engineer who's an entrepreneur. And, you know, Musk really informs that character as it develops. And then it becomes reciprocal, right? Then sort of the real Elon Musk informs the reboot of Tony Stark. And then the rebooted Tony Stark informs 
the changing character of Elon Musk until they sort of merge into one. How so? Because you do say that like, since Iron Man came out, Elon has very self-consciously changed the way he comports himself in public, the way he speaks, the way he presents himself. Like He's very conscious of the kind of stark Iron Man stuff in the background. How has that changed the way he presents himself in public? Yeah, I mean, I think that when you watch him when he's really young giving interviews, I find him kind of charming. Like, I, he's thoughtful. He has ideas and he's trying to figure out how to make his mark. And he's made a mark, but he's kind of talking himself through what comes next. And there's, it's not that there's self-doubt. I mean, he's, you know, just a sort of arrogant person. That's who he is. But there's a, I kind of got a good genuine curiosity in some sense that there are meaningful effects that he could have on the world. It's a sort of brainier, more intellectual version of Elon Musk. It's a little bit more Bill Gatesy, Steve Jobsy, And they were the kind of role models in that era when he first, you know, I'm thinking like after PayPal, right? So he's got piles of money, but you can sort of see he's still kind of Stanford grad PhD student. Do you know what I mean? Like where he's like, yeah, ideas are really important and interesting. And I want to build some things and make a difference. And I'm still thinking about what that would be. He doesn't have the swagger that he later has. He's younger. But after Iron Man, he's all swag. He's like 99% swagger, 1% ideas. Like it's just the performance of the swagger. And I, I'm sure the sort of feedback loop of that, the adoration that he gets for the swagger, right? Oh, this culture rewards people who swagger around, right? Until it decides not to. And then suddenly you're despised. I don't know. I think he really does sort of fashion himself. So after Tony Stark, even though the Tony Stark story is about how damaged Stark is by the adulation. Do you feel like he's kind of become a caricature of himself in that way without maybe I mean, realizing the public, it? I don't know if there is a private Elon Musk left, right? He's sort of That's kind of what I'm getting at. That's what I wonder. There's a quality yeah. to it now, right? Yeah. Is there somebody other than the person we see on the screen? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, sort of the public version is is a caricature. Because it, it must be exhausting, right, to have to constantly perform yourself as Tony Stark. I can't imagine. Like, what kind of domestic life could you have? Do you ever read poetry quietly? Do you sit in the woods? Do you have a day where you're not online? Do you, like, what life of the soul do you have in that incredibly revved up? And also, if you come to believe that you are saving humankind and you are surrounded by people who are constantly telling you that you are saving humankind— that's a tricky situation to find oneself in. Do you think he really believes that? Do you think he really, truly believes that he's saving humankind? What do you think? I don't know, Jill. I think it's entirely possible. I think someone who's lived his life and reached his stature might very well believe that. Yeah, there are these jokey moments where I watched a lot of interviews with him, and there's one where something seems to be turning somewhat, where Stephen Colbert introduces him and says, I can't tell whether you're a superhero or a supervillain. People have called you the real Tony Stark. Are you sincerely trying to save the world? I, well, I'm trying to do good things, yeah. I mean, but you're trying to do good things and you're a billionaire. I mean, yeah. that seems a little bit like either superhero or supervillain. You have to choose one. <laughs> trying to do useful things. <laughs> I mean, uh-huh. Yeah. And you sort of wonder, maybe he asks himself that question too. There are worse things to be doing. I mean, he's running an electric car company and a space exploration company. Like these are not objectively like evil things 
doing in the world. It's the assumption of, of power. It's the idea that, you know, my wealth allows me to exist outside of the world of ordinary people. I will not pay taxes. I'm not interested in government regulation. I don't honor or abide by the rules that the rest of people have to abide by. Well, that's the, that's the thing, right? I mean, the other part of me, the more skeptical part of me, thinks he's just P.T. Barnum with a freaking spaceship. Right. That like this is marketing. This is PR. This is his business model is to present himself as this kind of world savior and trying to distinguish that from, you know, his real genuine intentions is impossible. I mean, it's all speculation from this side of things. But, you know, I don't know. I don't know where the line is. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, I think, you know, some of what he does really is a kind of Barnum Fiji mermaid thing, you know. Right. right. Like the monkey skeleton stitched to the fish tail, like Neuralink. Um. So I want to emphasize the, the purpose of Neuralink. Like, uh, what do we, what's our goal? Our goal is to solve important spine and brain problems with a seamlessly, seamlessly implant, implanted device. So you want to have a device that you can basically uh, put in your head um, and feel and look totally normal, uh, but it solves uh, some, some important problem um, in your brain or spine. You know, I talked to a lot of neuroscientists. I thought about doing an episode about Neuralink, and people are just like, don't even pay. Like, it's just... It's crap. Like, it's a bad idea. It's like, there's nothing to say about it. So, you know, there is some of that. But you can't say that about the batteries that Tesla's manufacturing. And you can't say that about the rocket design, right? But to get back to sort of my interest in excavating a kind of intellectual history for Muskism is you really can trace a direct line from everything he's doing to a science fiction story that really dates to about a century ago. Really, the 1920s is really a golden age of a certain kind of science fiction. And some of it undoubtedly comes from the 1950s. There's a kind of Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein version of much of what Musk is doing. Basically, Mad Men version of a kind of 1950s political order. Look, all these white men have all the big ideas and they have built some cool machines. It's too bad we have governments that are standing in their way because these great engineers will do these cool things. But what happened after the 1950s with science fiction is that it became much more interesting when people like Ursula K. Le Guin and Octavia Butler and Margaret Atwood or Ted Chiang, like when science fiction began to expand to include feminist dystopias, began to expand to look at what the consequences of unfettered technological development were for the (laughs) underclasses of people. There's a whole world of post-colonial science fiction and feminist science fiction of really confronting gender inequality, of really thinking through what the political remedies are to income inequality, what the economic remedies are. All those things are explored in science fiction since the 1950s, but those are not works of science fiction that Muskism is informed by, that Jeff Bezos cites, that Musk tweets about. It's as if the genre just ended in 1957. Right? How do you explain that? Why did they just stop reading the science fiction at that point? Is it just because the narrative shifts in a direction that's less convenient? Or is that too simple? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I interviewed this one science fiction writer who's also a professor of theoretical physics, Vandana Singh, who was really interesting on this point. And she talked about growing up in India and reading Asimov and loving it so much, but also being very, very critical of it. And she talked about, and I spent a lot of time thinking about this, an essay that Ursula K. Le Guin wrote about the problems of science fiction, the science fiction that Le Guin grew up with, which was revisiting an essay that Virginia Woolf had written about the novel. And Woolf had argued that at the end of the day, all novels are about Mrs. Brown. That is, 
you know, ordinary middle-aged woman and the trials of daily life, right? Like all novels are about private life and the struggles of ordinary people privately. And nothing else in our culture casts light on these things. And Ursula K. Le Guin's essay about this Virginia Woolf essay about Mrs. Brown, her point was <laughs> problem with science fiction of the kind of Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein variety is there's no Mrs. Brown. Like these people, they can imagine any spaceship going into warp speed and handheld computers before they exist. And they can imagine transportation instantaneously. And they can imagine shifting states of matter and the implications of quantum physics. But they can't actually imagine Mrs. Brown. And you kind of get that sense looking at the life and work of a Jeff Bezos or an Elon Musk. They can't imagine Mrs. Brown either. For all the wildness of their imagination, they have no room for capacity to understand ordinary people and the daily sufferings of ordinary people. And is that the, to use your phrase, colonial mindset that you think was sort of borrowed from some of that old science fiction, or at least the readings of that old science fiction? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think it's also just, I mean, let's imagine that your vision of American family life was derived entirely from 1950s sitcoms. So Father Knows Best, Leave it to Beaver. And when you thought about the American family, that was your reference point and your sole reference point. And then you went around saying, here's how family should be. I have a big idea about how family life should be. We should have dinner at six o'clock and there should be mashed potatoes with every meal. And the father will sit at the head of the table and he will come home from work and he will ask the children, did they do their schoolwork? But then actually after dinner, he will go read the newspaper and the dog will bring him his slippers while the mother supervises the homework. You'd be like, why are we... (laughs) What are you talking about? Like, fine, that's one way to have a family life, but why are we asking you? Like, there's a lot that's happened in the history of family life since Leave it to Beaver was what people watched on television. And Leave it to Beaver was not actually a representation of most people's lives. This is a kind of weird cultural product of the 1950s that you're asking us to import into the 21st century. But in fact, that is what Muskism is, right? It's this vision of space that comes from that same era. It's that vision of a political and economic order that could be obtained through the exploration of space that comes from, you know, Mr. Robinson. Like, we're living in this 1950s imagination that Musk has, for whatever reason, not moved past, that Bezos has, for whatever reason, not moved past. It influenced his childhood, the visions of your childhood. But now they have, as the two richest people in the world, the ability to build those worlds. And so much of the sensibility that they grew up with as young kind of video gaming, sci-fi playing boys was building worlds. And like, that's fun. Like those video games are fun. Like those board games where you build worlds, that stuff is fun. But like, imagine you were the wealthiest person on the planet and you were like, I'm going to build Zork, and you have to just do what I say. Like, why do we live that way? According to Elon Musk himself, the most important aspect of his entire career has not been building electric cars or working to reduce carbon emissions. It's all been about SpaceX, the company that he says will one day bring human beings to Mars. Why is that so important to him? That's what I'll ask Jill Lepore after one last short break.
to make sure I ask about SpaceX, which is, by Elon's own account, the crowning focus of, of everything he's doing. All of his other work is sort of subordinated to SpaceX. Why SpaceX above all else? Why is that his baby? Yeah, um, I think Musk is genuinely fascinated by exploration in much the same way his grandfather was, right? He's an adventurer, you know, in, in the kind of grand spirit of that. I think it's achievable because of the technological innovations that the company has introduced, but also because of the political support that became available with the presidency of Donald Trump. So you wouldn't think, you know, like whether you should wear a mask or not wear a mask or whether you're going to read the adventures of Huckleberry Finn or not read the adventures of Huckleberry Finn. You wouldn't think that space exploration was necessarily a partisan issue. But like much else in the world, in the United States, it became a partisan issue in the 90s when it really became not a Republican position, but a conservative Republican position. Because for Newt Gingrich, who first advanced the cause of returning to the moon, it represented the next frontier for libertarianism, that in the same way that we might give up on the planet because of environmental collapse, we might give up on the planet because there really is a lot of regulation on the part of gov national governments. But in outer space, there's a possibility to build a wholly unregulated world free of government interference. It is really important to go back and look at what John F. Kennedy said in May of 1961, when he said, we will go to the moon in this decade. No American had orbited the Earth. The technology didn't exist. And a generation of young people went into science and engineering and technology, and they were tremendously excited. And they had a future. The program I envision would probably end up being 90% private sector. And, but it would be based on a desire to change the government rules and change the government regulations to get NASA out of the business of trying to run rockets and to create a system where it's easy for private sector people to be engaged. You will recall that Newt Gingrich is also the architect of the 1996 Telecommunications Act that got us a wholly unregulated cyberspace. And so for Gingrich, the vision was always, we will have a libertarian utopia in outer space and on cyberspace. There'll be no rules and no laws. It'll be entirely the free market. People could make huge amounts of money. It will promote innovation. There will be jobs, but it will be libertarianism entirely, be basically anarchic. And SpaceX is that in the same way that the internet is that, right? It, it is very difficult to add the rules afterward. We could stop and add the rules now about what life on Mars would be like, but there is no stopping what's happening because it became, via Newt Gingrich, it became a commitment of Donald Trump's. There's a moment in the 2012 GOP primary debates where Gingrich is going on about making the moon American again, and Mitt Romney is just like... If I had a business executive come to me and say they wanted to spend a few hundred billion dollars to put a colony on the moon, I'd say you're fired. That's a project of your personal vanity and a libertarian fantasy. But Gingrich very successfully chooses Trump by 2016, right? He's very much by his real architect of Trump's position. Once Trump wins on November 8th, 2016, both Bezos and Musk go to visit him in the Trump Tower and they pitch their space missions to him. And he's like, I mean, we don't know what happened in those meetings, but presumably, you know, if you lay off me politically and give me your support, I will make it possible for the federal government to... You can't just send a rocket up there. You do need to have NASA involved. And so, you know, becomes a signature issue for Trump during his four years in office to 
first promote the moon mission, then to call for Space Force, then to throw huge amounts of money at SpaceX for collaborative missions. And it's a big project of Ted Cruz, who's also a huge Robert Heinlein fan, who says the first trillionaire on Earth will be a space baron. And thank God we have space for unfettered capitalism because there are just too many constraints on capitalism here on Earth. There are, you know, minimum wages and maximum hour laws, but in space, you could do whatever you want. So it really becomes a conservative cause in this weird way. Increasingly, it's pitched, especially for Gingrich and for Cruz, as a national security issue because it's a race now against China, where the space race was a race against Russia or against the Soviet Union. But it's also necessary to develop this space force in order to protect the fleet of merchant ships that will be up there soon. I don't know, like, then this sort of happens behind the scenes in a way that, think about Kennedy's call to go to the moon, you know, the, the moon speech that he gives, which is a call for a public vision. This is not what Trump is calling for, right? That's not, it's not the same movement. No, this is kind of what I was getting at earlier with the point about this being perhaps a symptom of a damaged society. It's the opposite of that. It feels like a product of a collapse of trust or faith in the ability of the state to fix anything. And this ties into, you know, this element of catastrophism, which you say is very much part of Muskism, right? That it's an essential feature of Muskism is that, you know, we are on the brink of existential catastrophe and that space travel is necessary or essential to the continuation of the species because this world and this order is irredeemably broken and unfixable and we have to rebuild somewhere else. And I think Zuckerberg's metaverse is much the same. It's as simulated and unreal and fantasy-driven as a Mars colony. And it is also a solution to the problem of human misery or offered as a solution to the problem of human misery. You know, Musk's answers, you know, we will have this gleaming, bright new future on another planet that could be our salvation. And the language of salvation is a huge piece of this, right? A kind of very medieval yeah. Christian church language of salvation where, you know, there are priests and there's salvation to be found. And Zuckerberg's metaverse is somewhat the same, right? Find yourself lonely, miserable, alienated, bored. Come to this fake world. Imagine yourself someone who has a wealth of relationships that are meaningful and work that is meaningful. You don't have to find those things. You don't have to demand political change that makes those things more available to more people. You can just opt out. You can just leave. You can go to this fake world. Yeah. You know, I don't want to put this too strongly, but do you think muskism, not musk, but muskism is something that should be stopped? Which, of course, is separate from the question of whether it can be stopped. But do you see this mindset as, well, to use the word existential again, but as an existential threat itself? No. I think that elevates it beyond its quite ordinary, seedy greediness. I think, like plutocrats during the progressive era, space barons need to be made answerable to the public that makes their wealth possible. We need significant tax reform. <laughs> I think there has to be a kind of cultural shift where, I mean, I, I think, do they need to be stopped? Like, does the government need to say, you can't do that? No. Does there need to be a change in tax policy? <laughs> yes. Do I wish that 
cultural reporters would be less fawning of and adoring of and uncritical. I don't mean like take down critical, but I mean substantively, investigatively interested in the consequences of these ventures. Yes, I do think there needs to be more accountability. Do I think people shouldn't explore space? No, I think they should. I just think uh, the wealthiest people on the planet don't get to decide what happens to the rest of us. The whole history of civilization, the emergence of the rule of law, written constitutions, the consent of the governed, these things were the developments of thousands of years of political struggle in which ordinary people said, just because you have the most money, you don't get to rule over us. In fact, we are all born equal. And we have to guarantee that we have equal rights and equal opportunities. So to throw that away because Elon Musk is sexy and can be funny on Twitter is actually a catastrophe. Is it an existential one? No, it's just a mess. You obviously didn't get to interview Elon Musk for this podcast series. But if you did, if you could, what would you most want to ask him? I might ask him to speculate on what else he could have done with his money since the year 2000 than what he has done with it. You know, maybe I'll get you out of here with this because you also say in the podcast that we won't read Musk obituary in 50 years and wonder what the hell happened to that guy. You say it'll be a big budget, (laughs) a big budget Hollywood end. And I'm tempted to ask what you have in mind there, but instead, and in keeping with the spirit of your project, I'll ask this. When historians look back on this era of muskism do you think they'll see it as a blip in the broader story of technology and capitalism or do you think they'll see it as the beginning of a real shift in human life for better or worse yeah i think we're in the late stages actually of muskism i think it is on its way out and it will require a lot of analysis when we get to the other side of it But this is not a sustainable situation. It's so volatile. It's incredibly volatile. It's volatile moment by moment. So I I don't think many corporate cultures can endure that kind of volatility for decades and decades, for sure. Um, And I think the economic consequences of Muskism involve, and again, this is not about Musk's company, but about, you know, the abdication of the federal government's role in thwarting monopolies Um, that will come to an end one way or another. Okay. This has been great fun, Jill. It's really fun to talk to you. I wanted to talk to you for a long time and thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Thanks for doing it. It was really fun to speak with you. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Trostowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and Amber Hall is the Deputy Editorial Director of Vox Talk. And thanks to Victoria Dominguez, the Vox Audio Fellow, for her help on this episode. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us on Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.